0: a whole song you know it kind of sounds like um what do you call those you know those like big metal bowls um that I think like Jamaican musicians will like play with um those uh drumsticks that have like little pom-poms at the top you know what I'm talking about and it sounds all like you know Jamaica-y yeah that's uh that's kind of what it sounds like the xylophone which is kind of sweet I like it I did something today that reminded me of my childhood, which is um, I sat on the grass and I dug around looking for some four-leaf clovers, and that's something I used to do all the time, and I was reminded as to why I do that, and it reminded me that um, when I was five or six years old, I guess five, I was, I, no, six years old, yeah, I was in first grade, I met this um, woman she's a ba- she was my babysitter but she was this white lady named kathy and she was of poor health she was on a waiting list for a kidney because she was um undergoing renal failure and i remember accompanying her to like go with her where to the hospital where she had to get some um What is it? Dialysis or whatever, like to flush out the kidneys, basically. And um, yeah, like she taught me how to look for four leaf clovers because four leaf clovers are good luck. And she was a woman who was always looking for good luck charms because she really wanted this kidney. And I don't know. She comes from such a sad life. Uh, Her husband was a war vet. I don't know which war, but it was like, you know, um, either it was it was a pretty intense war. I don't know which one, though. I don't know if it was the Korean War or the Vietnam War or both. Or was it World War Two? It might have been World War Two. Um, but yeah, she she was a really kind woman and she was always um, looking for good luck in some way. And she taught me a lot of things about like flowers and plants. And um, she put up with me even though I wanted to watch Aladdin every single day. Like as soon as I came home from school, I would pop in a VHS of Aladdin and I would watch it from start to finish. And then I would go and do my homework or whatever else I needed to do because it was very important that I watch Aladdin. And um, I don't know why. I, I think it's just like, kids have that thing like they just need to hear the same song over and over again they need to see the same movie or tv show over and over again they need to do the same thing over and over again they need to hear the same word or same song over and over again it's that's just how it is like children are weird like that so that was my weird thing when i was a little kid and so um i was thinking of her today Uh, the other thing that i did um is uh next to the four leaf clovers were these clover floss like flowers these clover blossoms you see you know they look like little palms pom-poms right um and when they mature they turn into this beautiful purple color but when they're not mature they are still this white this little white collar white pom-pom color and uh i like when i was a kid my parents would um pick two of those flowers and then they would tie it into a knot and then they would turn it into a little ring so that's what i made for myself i made a little ring and so i have a flower ring today and i think a lot of like other korean kids did this when they were children growing up it's like a childhood thing among korean kids um so yeah if you know you know and if you don't know now you know because i just mentioned it um But yeah, nourish your inner child in some way. I did some of that this evening, and uh, I feel a lot lighter, for sure. Because towards the, like, around dusk, as the afternoon was ending and the evening was beginning, I felt so much, like, rage and pent-up anger and stress. It was just, like, swirling around inside of me, and it was driving me crazy. So I just grounded down, and did some inner child work and I felt a lot better. And I think also just like sitting on grass and leaning my back up against a tree for a little bit. I think that also helped me ground down. Big announcement, you guys. So K-Drama School the book is now available on Amazon for pre-order. Yes, that is big news. Clap clap clap. Yes, ding ding ding. I guess I'll hit the thing. Yeah, it's good shit. K-Drama School, my book, is now available on Amazon for pre-order. And the release date has actually been updated. It, it is now April 23rd, 2024. So that is the drop date. It is the day after Earth Day, which is kind of cool. I love Earth Day because I love Earth. It is also cool because it's the day after Passover Day. <laughs> yeah, so um for all the Jews out there, uh for all the judeo-christians, it is it is in a it is happening on a holy month. Yes, right? April, that's also when Easter happens. Yes. All the good stuff happening that week and my book is going to be dropping that same week. So it'll be on that Tuesday of April 23rd, 2024. And the pre-order link is available on kdramaschool.com. You can also go to gracejungcomedy.com and pre-order link is also available there. Let's talk about Behind Your Touch. What a fun show. I really enjoyed watching this series. It, it is a show that reunites actress Han Chi min with director Yi seok Gyun, And they both collaborated on the series The Light in Your Eyes, which also stars Kim Hye-ja who's a very big-time veteran actress. This series, Behind Your Touch, also reunites Lee gyun with actor Lee Min-gi. And Lee min and Lee Seok-yoon worked on the series My Liberation Notes last year. So the intertext and these callbacks, these references, the parody, the satire, all of this callback to My Liberation Notes at the In the first few episodes of uh, Behind Your Touch, it was pretty blatant, very on the nose, you know? They were using the music cues, they were using some scene beats, right? And um, yeah, I mean, I personally didn't like that, only because to me, My Liberation Notes is a holy text. It's a holy text, so leave it alone. It's a sacred text. Why, why touch it, you know? Um, but whatever, he's the director of both shows. He's free to do as he pleases. Whatever. I'm glad that they stopped doing it. Like, like three episodes later, they they kind of cut the crap. The show is unique in a couple of ways. For one, it's written by a male screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yi Namgyu wrote this series. He also wrote The Light in Your Eyes. He also wrote Living Among the Rich, and both of those shows star Kim He-ja. Yeah. And his screenwriting work dates back all the way to, like, 2004 with the show called Old Miss Diary, which he actually co-wrote with screenwriter Park Hae-young. And Park Hae-young wrote My Liberation Notes. So this show, Behind Your Touch, is really a reunion and a collaborative energy that dates back 20 years. And there's a strong rapport between the director and screenwriters, which give this show a very strong boost and the series is also unique in that although the character bongyebun and moonjangyeol are like the love interest for each other um the series is not a gooey ass rom-com it's not like you know these the 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 point of the show like the objective for these characters is not romance the objective and the focus of this show is is a lot more serious, right? They, they, re, they unite and collaborate in order to figure out who the serial killer is that's going around murdering all their fellow villagers. I love the way that Ye Bun was able to acquire her powers. They call it psychometry. And the way that she came into this power is by touching a cow's butt. Right? Because she's a veterinarian and she was called to check on this cow. So she, her hand just so happened to be on this cow's butt while the cow's owner's hand was on the cow's leg. And that's when this asteroid hit this cow. And that changed things for these characters. Ye Bun was now able to see people's memories. Not just people, but also animals. She could see their memories by touching their asses. I mean, that's a really funny premise, isn't it? Doesn't it sound like a like a B-horror film in America? I think it's an amazing premise because it's like so campy and ridiculous. And it's specific. And it's like weird. It's like she needs to go around touching people's asses. And she needs to figure out a way to like not be pervy about it. I mean, that's the reason why Detective Moon keeps calling her a pervert at the, <laughs> in the beginning of the show. Which was, which was fucking hilarious to me because she kind of was a pervert. Like there was like a bit of a predatorial prowler aspect to her, especially because she was in love with that convenience store cleric, right? She was definitely prowling around him. This series behind your touch reminds me so much of another show that I absolutely love called when the camellia blooms. And that show also happens to be uh, a show that's written by a man, um, Im sang Chun is the screenwriter for that series. And it's another hilarious rom-com with the serial killer on the loose in this quaint village where the protagonist is a vulnerable woman. So the concept is not new. It's just recycled and used in a different way. Quick side note. So... Lim Sang-chun of When the Camellia Blooms just wrote a new series called Thank You for Your Hard Work or Puk Sak Sokasuda which stars IU and Park bo Oh my god. Oh my god. What a duo. What a collaboration. That is supposed to be dropping sometime in 2024, but holy shit, I think everybody would appreciate that show. I mean, wow. Park bo and IU. I mean, that that holy shit. Both amazing actors. I would say IU is probably a better actor than Park Bo Gum. I mean, she's way more experienced. But uh, holy shit. Yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, I, it's almost, I'm almost afraid. I'm almost like, this is such a great pairing that I'm afraid that the show might suck. <laughs> and it would be really sad. But no, let's not go there. Let's just have the uh, best expectations. Why don't we do that? The concept of a vulnerable female protagonist living in a quaint village... Um, while a serial killer prowls around. That concept was also in another series called Summer Strike, which came out last year. Im Shiwan is in that. So I'm wondering, like, what's with the serial killer concept in these quiet villages? Why? And I think it's there only because of one reason. It's for entertainment value. Um, nothing draws a viewer in more than conflict. Nothing draw, draws a viewers' attention and more than when there is danger. Danger for us to look out for. So that's that's it. It's like the same premise. That's again, it's sort of like just realigned in a different way. But basically, it's like this like a big shot soul light, some urban night, lands in a rural Korean village and then they start clashing. Yeah, with the locals because the locals have no boundaries, they have no they have none of the urban mannerisms um so yeah they start clashing and it's also because the urbanites tend to be very arrogant and uh, rigid and and stuck up in their ways so this is not a new concept it's been happening in korean cinema since like the 90s like a lot of 90s korean movies were using this concept um the like modern urbanite clashing with quote-unquote backwards rural korea and that out of that clashing is where the comedy emerges. Yeah. This is a a trope. It's been recycled and redone over and over again. But now this is being there's this other thing that's being added to that layer, all right? It's not just about urbanites and, you know, rural Koreans clashing out of culture clash, cu- culture conflicts, but also like they need to reunite they need to unite and they need to fight this serial killer on the loose. Like, all of these villages have a serial killer. What's with that? It has this shaman character, Park Jong-bae, who is what's called a kirogi appa or kirogi dad or a wild goose dad. Yeah, that's the nickname given to Korean men who live in the motherland while their spouse and children live abroad, typically in an English-speaking country like Australia, America, New Zealand, the United Kingdom. It's usually like over there somewhere. And then the Korean dad is living alone and being the breadwinner, working in Korea and sending money to his family abroad. I remember reading a New York Times article about this concept like 15 years ago or something. And it was so sad. Like these dads would eat alone every single day and yeah, they, they would just complain about how lonely they felt and how sometimes they felt suicidal, that it was really hard for them. And I think that is heartbreaking, you know, to be a split family in that way for the sake of what? So that a person, so that their children can potentially have easier upward mobility because they were educated in, in an English speaking society. Why? Is it because the English-speaking society is going to give them greater cultural value in some way because they speak English? Is that the reason why? And does that guarantee a life of, I don't know, high standard living? I mean, does it guarantee that? Obviously not. It doesn't. It doesn't. That's why it's an absurdity. It's absurd. It's absurd that families would go to these lengths to do this. And the way I see it is this is just intergenerational trauma that's working its way out in a different way. In this regard, it's the father who's actually being abandoned. Yeah. Like a lot of the times we talk about like, you know, orphaned, orphaned children or families that get torn apart because of, you know, wars, right? Or just dislocation, family records being ruined or erased or lost because of, uh, war trauma, you know, disconnection, um, whatever. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a big issue. And we always think about the child from the children's perspective, but we don't really think about that from the father's perspective and what that might do to a person, to a man who is, I mean, he's basically being exploited in a, in a sense, isn't he? I mean, he's, Separated from his wife and child, his support system. And he is expected only to work and send money. It's very dehumanizing, if you think about it. But there's this scene on this show that exposes the absurdity of this kirogi dad concept in a hilarious way. So, you know, the shaman guy, he's living in Korea. He's living in this village and he's a shaman, but he's not doing so well in terms of his work and his kid needs $500 because the child wants to take K-pop dance classes in Australia. Yeah. That is the reason why he needs to come up with $500 and this this scene is demonstrating the absur- the absurdity of South Korea's status today and like what that's doing to the families. Yeah, both local and abroad. Whereas in the past, leaving the country to find some elevated social status through higher ed in an English-speaking country might have been the thing to do. Um, Now that these English-speaking countries are K-pop obsessed, and that these English-speaking countries have English-speaking people who are learning 한글 in order to sing along with K-pop and to watch K-dramas, right? the Korean Diaspora Kids who have a kirogi father, are experiencing Korea outside of their home turf and spending money on their own cultural product, but having an international experience from it that is different and away from their homeland. Isn't that wild? I mean, that to me is really fucking wild. It's crazy to me. And yet that's that's what's happening. So this series is in a very like I don't think I don't think it meant to do this, but this character, uh Pak Chung is really, really multifaceted. And I I'm not convinced that um he's just a serial killer because he enjoys killing. I mean that is typically why serial killers end up being serial killers, but I'm just thinking about like the mental and emotional toll that his situations have taken on him, you know, like he, he was exploited multiple times, like his family was exploited by that local corrupt politician and his, his family, again, is uh, exploiting him specifically so that his kid can take K-pop classes while living abroad. And that is, of course, their choice as parents, but it's like it was motivated by, by something else, by, well, it was motivated by greed. Essentially that's what it was. I mean, he wanted he wanted his kid to live abroad so that the kid can grow up to make more money than he ever did. So it's in a way cloaked with greed. Yeah, we can't always say that that's like an unconditional love thing. No, no, no. You got your motives too. Let's be real now. So this question around what is modern starts to splinter with this with this show. And there's definitely a push among young people nowadays who live in urban societies. And they're striving for this slower-paced, more peaceful sort of countryside living. And um, that does come with its, you know, irritants. Like you have these local urban, I mean, local rural people who completely lack boundaries. And, you know, they're not up to speed with a lot of the the things that urban you know, societies have. So there's a frustration that's, that's built up. But uh, they also end up having closer intimacy and bonding more so than ever before because in these villages, everybody knows one another. Everybody's in one another's business. You don't get as much individuality as you might have living an urban life. It's often typical of these parents of small villages to discourage their children from moving into an urban society, right? Like it's, it's kind of like, um, like very old school back in the day, like 1800s, no, even before 1800s, like before the industrial revolution kind of America, like, Oh, why would you want to go to the city? You know, the city's dirty. It's full of criminals, right? Like that's what, that was the saying, but now it's different. It's like, Um, do you really want to go, like, you live in a city and you're safe. Do you really want to go live in a village where you might get killed by some psycho, you know? So it's like, what's with these killers prowling around these little villages? That whole cat and mouse aspect is in behind your touch in order to keep the story moving forward. That's really the only reason, yeah. I started to kind of lose interest a little bit when the shaman turned out to be the murderer. Because, again, I'm not convinced that he is, like motivated by pure evil like he just doesn't come off as that right that's what he says but it's not convincing it was a lot more convincing when the suspicion was around that corrupt politician because he really had a motive to go around killing people the series reminds me of another show which had a very similar concept it's called queen of mystery and it's based on sherlock but it was developed for Korean television. And instead of a white Englishman being Sherlock, it's a Korean housewife. It's amazing. Yeah, she teams up with a detective and uh, they develop a bond, but their romance is like consistently deferred throughout the show. And then there's a se- season two, and that romance is like consistently deferred throughout season two as well. The show has the actor Pak Shik. In this series, and Park No Shik is the guy who plays Chun Kwang Shik. He's the guy who can see people, uh, their memories by touching their legs, right? He was he's the cow owner, and he is um, an actor that was in a Park No Shik was in a movie by, uh, Bong Jun Ho called Memories of Murder, and Memories of Murder is uh, it's a movie that's based on fact. So in the 80s, I believe, late 70s or 80s? No, this is definitely 80s. In the 1980s, right, like prior to the 80s, South Korea did not have a serial killer. Okay, like, I mean, one can argue that during war, everybody was a serial killer. We can argue that. But like, out of an urban society, a serial killer emerging, like that's a concept found in quote unquote, first world countries. Okay, So countries like America had a bunch of serial killers already by then. We still have a lot. I mean, we make documentaries about them all the time. But this is a first world country um, malaise. Okay, This is a social malaise that is developed in first world countries. Developing nations tend to not have serial killers. But this concept of a serial killer was emerging in the 1980s as South Korea was starting to pick up In terms of its like modern technologies and its factories and it was, you know, in their chemical industries, their motor industries, like these things were starting to pick up steam. Right around then is when the serial killer phenomenon started happening. And the serial killer phenomenon was happening in a rural town. And... um, the year that Bong joon won an Oscar for Parasite is the same year that they finally caught that serial killer. I believe I mentioned this on this podcast. The serial killer was never caught for like decades and decades. He was just like let loose. But he went around murdering specifically little like teenage girls or young women. Yeah, he would like, he would um, assault them and then murder them. So that's been the consistency with that dude. And Park No Shik is in that film. He's in the film Memories of Murder. Another thing I appreciate about uh, Behind Your Touch and in When the Camellia Blooms, actually, both of these shows casually illustrate the underground world of prostitution in South Korea. Now, in Behind Your Touch, we have the coffee delivery women these chicks who get on these motorcycles and then they bring coffee to men while they're shooting pool or they'll meet up at a motel or meet up at their office. And these chicks are basically prostitutes. They're entertainers. And they work out of coffee shops or a tabang. Tabang is the word. Tabang is um, basically affiliated with sex trafficking. It's affiliated with thugs, debt-ridden women. It's affiliated with prostitution. Now, Tabangs were not always affiliated with this stuff. It was typically... um, It was actually... It began in the colonial era in the early 20th century in Korea. Like, this was colonial-occupied Korea, so it was when Japan was occupying it. And um, in the late 1800s is when uh, coffee started to get imported into the Korean peninsula. And so the tabang would... um, They would serve coffee there. They would also serve alcohol and people would go there and smoke cigarettes and the people who typically met there were artists, singers, musicians, actors, a lot of intellectuals, a lot of activists. It was where the young, like you know, fired up people would meet and commiserate on, like, are are they going to finally fight the Japanese and gain independence? Or, like, what kind of political moves do they need to make? Or what's the next phase? What's the next wave of art culture that they could, you know, work up? So, Tabang in the early 20th century was, like, a really cool place, you know? Like, think of, I don't know, think of these places where they'll play, like, Really good music and you know, you could sit down. I don't know, like like a like a really decent, like Verve coffee house, you know, like a really excellent coffee house. Like think of it that way. So it had it had this like sophisticated sort of connotation, but now it's it's totally different. Yeah, why? Because coffee is now available everywhere. Nobody needs to go specifically to a tabang for coffee. So what are the what do the businesses do? Ah, we know what sells better than coffee? Sex. Okay, so that's how this whole thing started changing. So now tabang has a totally different association. But I think the hetero cis male perspective, from a screenwriting perspective, has some, I don't know, some significance because it illustrates these working women in these tabangs as coffee delivery girls, as prostitutes. It illustrates them in a sympathetic light. And I think with Behind Your Touch and in When the Camellia Blooms, actually, there there are sex workers in that too. There's this very frank way of mentioning that they're prostitutes. And then there's a way to humanize these women as working women, you know, like the, the narrative goes into their woes, it goes into their past pains, it goes into their dreams and goes into their circumstances. It does make an attempt at humanizing these women in a, in a deep way. In the final episode, when Ye Bun and detective moon finally track down the shaman and uh, the shaman starts to give this long monologue, right? He starts saying that he's going to use his eyes when he goes into prison in order to determine his fate. And he's going to control people. Yada, yada, yada. He's got this long ass monologue. And then Ye Bun takes her two fingers and then like pokes both of his eyeballs. I was cracking up for like three minutes straight. That was such a good move. Like, you know, K-dramas crack me up every once in a while, but they don't make me laugh that hard. But I would, I de- Behind Your Touch, this show definitely had me cracking up multiple times for like an extended period of time. And I really enjoyed that part. So thank you. My God, Han Jimin, you are awesome. Han Jimin is so funny. This show really like showed like her cute side. And I loved her sweaters. Oh my God! All the sweaters that Han Ji Min wore on the show were like amazing. Also, all the shows—I mean, the all the sweaters that Oki wore, right? What what's that actress's name? Uh Min Kyung. Min Kyung. We see her in everything, right? Her sweaters amazing. <laughs> like yeah, Han Ji Min sweaters amazing. Where do these country girls buy their sweaters? I want them the the sweater that okie was wearing i think in episode 15 she had the sweater with like the the cherries all over oh my god beautiful sweater where can i get that sweater i need it with those big golden buttons i tell you like when you go to these some of these like rural markets like the Shijiang, you know out in like these boonies I don't know where they get the clothes. I know that they're locally made and they're just like, they're they're mass produced, but like not for, you know, like Walmart or something like mass produced scale, maybe like a hundred pieces or whatever. They are hilariously tacky and just like epic works of art. I love them. And honestly, I want to go to Korea just so I can go to these like small towns and like buy up a bunch of their sweaters because I was loving loving the the outfits and behind your touch and i really love the show